Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, folks. Welcome back. I'm really excited about today's show. On today's episode, I'll be speaking with Dr. Christopher Kerr about a fascinating topic, end-of-life experiences. My neighbor Jim died recently. He was 78 years old. He lived directly across the street from us, and he would sit at his desk in the garage as the garage was his man cave. And on most days, when his wife was alive, he had the garage door wide open. And that's how I got to know Jim and his wife because he lived most days in the garage. He helped us as new homeowners. He would oftentimes offer me an unwrapped C's chocolate from his desk drawer as we chatted. He and his wife were prepared for every holiday. They decorated the inside and outside of their home from Valentine's Day through Christmas every year. As an Irish man on St. Patrick's Day, he would tell me to come by a certain time to pick up our portion of corned beef and boiled cabbage and potatoes. I never had boiled cabbage until I met Jim. A retired postman, he spent most of the day in the garage and in his better days tended to their pristine yard. He started his mornings with a crossword puzzle and a cup of coffee in a stained plastic cup, and then would listen to the radio and eventually move on to television for all the sporting events especially a 49ers game. And if the 49ers lost, his garage door would close. On Super Bowl Sunday, he would bring us cupcakes with plastic rings on them that we would devour. If he found especially unicorn-looking cupcakes, he would bring them for our daughter. He was the one who taught me that you can keep a garage floor clean, and they always went to the supermarket on Fridays. When my daughter was little, and she learned from her brother that Jim kept chocolates in a bureau drawer in his garage, Jim lowered that candy drawer so that Rosie could also reach inside and get what she wanted. Even after his wife died, and he said that he had aged 10 years from her sudden death, he would make sure to give our children Valentine's Day presents, Easter baskets, birthday presents, Halloween baskets, and Christmas gifts, even when he was hurting. Everybody on the block loved Jim, but Jim didn't like everybody. Living was really hard for Jim after his wife died three years ago. While he was crotchety and loving, his wife was all loving. They were an example for me, in my own life, of the kind of parents we could be and the kind of family that we could choose to raise. Jim only went to the doctor once a year, around December. A year before he got really sick, We noticed that he was getting slower, his legs were swelling up, and he was more short of breath when he walked. He asked me for medical advice, even if he didn't always listen. Jim got really sick at the end of 2020 and died on February 25th after going in and out of the hospital and choosing the hospice the last two weeks. He died at home, having loved and being loved incredibly. Jim's daughter told me that several weeks before his death, he had two very vivid dreams, which he shared with his daughter. And he told her that normally he doesn't have nor remember his dreams. In his dream, he had entered a ballroom full of people that he knew in his life, people who had passed. Everyone looked great. They were dressed up. The music was playing. They were at a party. He had the same dream the next day, where he went to the same party again, and someone at the party this time told him that this party was for him, and everyone had gathered for him. 
but he hadn't yet seen nor found his deceased wife at the party. As I interview Dr. Christopher Kerr today, I believe what he says in his book, Death is But a Dream, to be true. That the prejudices of present-day medical training have caused an inability to see dying as anything but a failure, and they compromise the self-soothing power of a patient's end-of-life experiences. What this means is that nowadays, doctors often see a person's dying or end-of-life experiences as something that is not relevant to their line of work of treating. And in my own career, I started to wonder how much treating is there and how much actual healing is occurring. If we continue to treat at any cost, are we making the end of our lives more painful? Will dying be more painful for us? At that point, are we prolonging our lives or are we prolonging our death? Dr. Kerr brings up the idea that we need to bring doctors back to the bedside, to their roots as comforters of the dying, rather than as mere technicians trying to extend life at all costs. Think about it. You could have already seen this. For that rare person who dies at home under hospice, how many doctors have come to that person's bedside? When a person is dying in the hospital or in a nursing home and comfort care has been chosen, where the primary goal is just to make the patient as comfortable as possible, the frequency of doctors visiting will decrease. I understand that dying and death is a difficult topic. It's a painful topic. But I can't help but think that this way of thinking needs to change. If we don't respect the sacredness of the dying process, the beauty that this process could be, and this phenomenon that occurs in most people, where they have end-of-life experiences that help the dying to transition from distress to acceptance, to have these experiences which could be life-affirming, to feel that tranquility and to feel whole before dying, are we cutting ourselves short? And while it would be great for more doctors to incorporate this awareness into their practice, the truth is most doctors are not in private practice. We work for managed healthcare. The healthcare needs to change and accept our humanity. We have lost our way with dying and with death. It seems like over the past year, there has been a lot of death in our lives. Many of us have lost a loved one this year. I hope that this interview helps to make your hearts feel a little better, even if it's just for a little bit. This past year, my family has lost Donna, our beloved nanny who helped us to function as a whole when I was working my crazy hours and commuting to my hospital job. We lost Pat Allen, a very kind lady who always had a smile on her face and was always entertained by our extended family and saved all of our holiday cards. And we lost our California grandpa, Jim. My son, William, lost his flag football game this past weekend. And my husband, who is William's coach, thought it would make Jim laugh to tell him that William is still mad at him for the play call that he had made in the last few minutes, causing them to lose the game. And on today's show, I'll be speaking to Dr. Christopher Kerr, who is a hospice physician and end-of-life researcher. He wrote Death is But a Dream, which is based on Dr. Kerr's extensive research with hospice patients and their families in Buffalo, New York, which highlights and validates the powerful dreams and visions often experienced at the end of life that bring comfort and meaning to the dying process. His TED Talk has over 3 million views. His work is also featured in the Netflix docuseries Surviving Death. And most recently, Dr. Kerr and his research team are featured in a public television documentary, Death is But a Dream, which premiered on WNED-PBS, which serves Western New York and is set to air nationally in April 2021. Welcome to Lost or Found, Dr. Kerr. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> and, you know, I just want to let you know, you know, reading your book, Death is But a Dream, I was so profoundly moved and changed 
uh, by your book. It's made me definitely rethink death and dying. We're coming from a doctor. That means a lot. Thank you. <laughs> you know, like definitely like thinking about the patient's experiences, their dreams, you know, your interactions with them, the family surrounding the patients. I mean, it was so beautiful. Thank you. I, I, I should have probably had like tissues surrounding me, but I didn't think <laughs> well, enough. I'm sure it was pretty relatable for you. You know, in your book, you describe the medical death. Do you think we've lost our way with the dying? Yeah, I, I think um, we have taken what is fundamentally, uh, at its core, a very human experience, and we've medicalized it. And in doing so, we've sterilized it from ourselves, in a way. Um, I can't think of a more inapplicable approach than an organ system-based approach to care when that version of care is no longer uh, relevant. And um, I think, you know, dying is about closing a life, not about failing parts. And uh, we make it all the more difficult in and around our issues of honest, uh, transparent conversations when it comes to things like prognostication. So as you, I'm sure you can think of many, many cases where we've treated or seen a patient where dying has been treated, approached as an acute event, when the only thing acute about it was the awareness. It actually was forecastable. And, um, you know, people die differently who uh, are, are cared for by a strategy where they hope for the best but also prepare for the worst. And so often we make it a trauma uh, larger than it is. I think the truth is, you know, I think the medical field, like you say, it sees death as a failure. You know, when treatment is no longer available, and I think because doctors are uncomfortable with death and see it that way, I think we're not giving the death and dying credence, you know, to treat it as a part of the life cycle. And I loved what you said in your book. You said something along the lines of medical care is about defying death. And if it can't be defied, it's denied. And I think that's what we're seeing. Yeah. And yet when you think of our obligation, right, it's, it's to cure where possible and to comfort always. And I think we're doing the first but not the last. Definitely. And even in terms of, you know, I think your uh, hospice team, the palliative care team at Buffalo Hospice is so much more different because from my experience, having worked in the hospital, hospice is when patients have less than six months to live or are terminally ill. But I think majority of patients go on hospice, it seems like on average, when they have like less than a week to live. And I think that's such a shame. Yeah, it's become near death care. And yes. uh, it's and tragically more and more, it's actually becoming crisis based care. Um, so, you know, we have a world class healthcare system when it comes to interventional treatment based care. But then when you're no longer deemed curative, you kind of fall off this cliff. And ironically, when you need may need care the most, I mean, supportive care in the home where you're actually experiencing your illness, you actually can receive the least amount of care. Um, and, you know, the, the, the delays, tragically, what's, what's, what's unfortunate is if you look at the trajectory of hospice over 40-some years, the length of stay isn't going in the right direction. So we're not getting better at this. And my, my own personal view is that care is more fragmented. Um, you know, you've got hospitalists and primaries and multiple layers of mid-levels, et cetera. Um, and there's even some data, actually, that the more doctors involved, the less the patient and family actually know. So there's no overseer of care. There's no case synthesis, at least not until it's at very near the end. I agree. And I think, you know, it's kind of like medical care has become treating at all cost. And the question is, how much cost, you know, in terms of emotional, you know, financial and everything. But I think, you know, what you say in your book is absolutely true. Most people want to die at home, but the reality is most don't die at home. They live, they die in the hospital. Like back in the day, you know, people used to have like slabs of marble behind their dining room door because you would die at home and your body would be shown at home. But that's not the case anymore. We're dying a death that we don't want to die. Yeah, yeah. We're dying the doctor's death. Yeah, the doctor's death. Yeah. Well, and what we've done really uh, and tragically is, is disconnect people from the humanness of it. So we've created obstacles to the bedside um, for families um, rather than bringing them to it. And that's really what the, 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 the patient needs. And the data is also very interesting at tertiary care centers for that despite all the 
intervention and sophisticated medicine, they're actually not living longer. So we're not changing outcome and we're not changing quality of life and we're not changing quality of death um, by failing to recognize really when enough is enough. I agree. And I think, you know, when we create these obstacles and patients die the doctor's death, I think, you know, we take away from that experience of what it could be, like reassessing your life, embracing love and forgiveness like you talk about, you know, having closure. All of these important things that can happen are not may not be happening. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, that's a form of healing onto itself that that we're not recognizing. You know, and I'm not sure whether we should look entirely to medicine for the answers. You know, I think this also belongs in other domains: um, the, the social work, pastoral care, um, these other patients to really to take care of the person in totality. Certainly, definitely. And I love what you say, you know, um, in your book, you say, as there are many that fear death in our society, you describe that pain in the dying really lies in the psychological aspect. Can you describe that? Yeah, I think we have overcomplicated, I, I think anticipated fear for f the physical symptoms, physical dimensions of dying is far greater than what the reality is. Um, you know, dying tends to take care of itself. Um, you're overwhelmed with high, with fatigue and not wanting to eat, and there's a slow slide of progressive sleep. Um, there certainly are pain syndromes and other physical symptoms, but are generally easily managed. What's lost, unfortunately, is psychogenic distress, um, and often the form of delirium or sleep disruptions or depression or anxiety that sort of thing. We tend to deal with what's more physically evident, but not necessarily what's inside. I mean, not only do we as in medicine have trouble with death, we don't come close to understanding what the experiential side of it is for the patient. I think, you know, part of the problem lies in like, you don't do this, but I think most of us in medical care, we're so rushed. Time is the issue. Time is of the essence. I think we're not listening to our patients. Yeah. I mean, to do um, we're doing the science of medicine very well in some ways, but we're not doing its art well um, in all regards. And I, I think when we can no longer do things to the patient, we have trouble just creating presence. Um, the doctor has kind of lost that. There's no billable format um, for, for just being there. And um, that, that is a form of comfort. It goes back to what I kind of said in the books is the worst thing we say is there's nothing more we can do for you. And really what we're saying is there's nothing more we can do to you. And they're two very different things. Yeah, like knowing when to put that stethoscope aside yeah. and just sit there and talk with them as a human, like you say. Yeah, well, dying is lonely. I think that's one of the most common symptoms. Um, you're scared, you're looking at a white ceiling. Um, and, and yeah, uh, and, 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 and interestingly, and, and I, I determined to do a paper on this when we have a 22 bed inpatient unit and one of the, um, so we have patients coming in, uh, 24 hours a day. And, uh, one of the most common symptoms we address is this feeling of abandonment. So people enter this journey with their physician and, uh, the depth of attachment and dependency and hope that's buried in that relationship deep. And then all of a sudden you kind of fall off the assembly line and people feel more lonely for that. And especially in the hospital. I mean, if most are dying in the hospital, the hospital's a really busy place, you know, it's like a lot of patients are alone. Do you think things would be better if patient, more patients died at home? Yeah, I, there are exceptions. There are people who certainly don't want to create um, a memory in the home. And so their primary concern is to protect their loved ones. Um, but generally, yes, most people are. You know what it is? It, 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 to die well, you have to be able to sleep well. And that means, obviously, you can't sleep if you're in physical pain. Um, but also psychologically or spiritually, you also need to be at peace. And uh, uh, hospitals, uh, for all the good things they are, miraculous things they are, they're a tough place to rest. And dying in a hospital, is, that's why the instance of delirium is so horrible. Um, because it's, you know, there's a lot of fragmented sleep. 
being um, woken up every 30 minutes or yeah, every so you, hour yeah. I mean, for your vitals. Of, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, like yeah. the bells ringing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's actually the most common thing we see coming, pulling patients out of the hospital here is uh, delirium, probably secondary to sleep disruption. One of the images that I was profoundly moved by um, looking at one of your videos was that when a patient dies in your facility, as they're being, I guess, wheeled out of the hallway, like everyone is almost like saluting that patient. Yeah, it's it's a, and I we picked that up, I think from a hospice in California. I'm not sure, I think it might be Zen, Zen hospice or somewhere. But the idea, and it's, it's perfect, is that it, it's in, vitally important that we stop and we can't, we can't tr treat death and that ending of a life uh, for that patient, for that family as a transactional event that just went. Um, there has to be some recognition and I'm convinced as caregivers, we're better for it if, if, if it, it feels le less dehumanized. So if we can kind of stop together, reflect, pause, um, honor, revere that life, then I think that that helps us all hang in there and do this better. Yeah, because I think with like the technological aspect of medicine, how it's changed the quickness of everything, sometimes we take for granted or we don't acknowledge the importance of knowing that life, that person. No. Yeah, it's a difference between having patients, knowing patients versus people, right? Yeah. That's one of the great joys of doing home care. What most attracted me to it is all of a sudden I had this protected time. And it was funny because I was a cardiology fellow at the time, and I can remember being in the cath lab and not knowing person's name. We were sticking long, sharp, long objects in, and then going into a home care and knowing the person, their family, their dog, seeing their pictures. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's one of the things that's taken away from medicine is, is that um, we become so technically based um, that we, we, we miss and lack reward for the impulses that we went to medicine with, um, which was to care for other people. Yeah, it's really hard, I think, when the caring is taken away, you know, like knowing your patient's name when you're like reminded of their names by your computer, you know, when you see 25 patients a day, you know, like in the preventative, I mean, in the, in the um, primary care setting, yeah. you know, yeah. well, it's maybe a, that's it's, why we're it's killing a, ourselves more. <laughs> yeah, it's a squeeze, it's a squeeze model. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I find your work and research absolutely fascinating because you and your team went directly to the dying individuals and asked them if they were dreaming what and whom they were dreaming about. I think that was so amazing. It grew from a frustration trying to teach it. And I had no idea that this was a thing. And uh, in 99, when I started to do the work and, and what happened was I was teaching it and the retort I always got was there's no evidence for it. And so we took an evidentiary approach to, to it. And that's And you video recorded everything, right? Yeah, you know why? Because vantage point is everything. And if I tell you that the dying patient is having these experiences, your immediate assumption is they're feeble-minded and or confused. And it was really important to understand that we weren't talking about the minutes before death, but the days, weeks, and sometimes months before death. And that they look and sound like you and I many times, and they're cognitively intact. These were IRB-approved studies with consent. We were screwing for delirium. But until we were able to capture them, we could never do it justice. Um, so that's why we did the film. And the irony of the film, of course, it ended up making it into a Netflix series and now a documentary. But it was originally meant for a medical audience. Um, I was imagining myself giving grand rounds and everyone, nobody believing me, so I wanted to have the video. And that's how this happened. I think eventually you will. <laughs> I think the medical <laughs> climate will have to change, you know, yeah. and hopefully it will change. But Dr. Kerr, like these videos are pretty amazing because these are patients who are dying, but looking at the screen and describing their experiences. I mean, they're clear. They're talking about it. Can you describe for our listeners what end of life experiences are? Sure. Um they're defined kind of as these subjective experiences at end of life. Um, so we understand a great deal, obviously, is, is focus on the physical aspects of dying. But there's this non-physical, experiential piece to dying. So what what are what are they, what are what are what are they uh, feeling and thinking? And it turns out 
um, not surprisingly, and this has always been written about, that they're having very intense and vivid dreams. We use the word dreams um, because it's the only nomenclature reference point we have, but our patients tell us, you know, you know the, 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 no, you don't understand, this wasn't a dream, I don't normally remember my dream. Um, so when we measure reality, degree of realism, it scores 10 out of 10. Um, so they're very common. Uh, it's nearly 90%. If you follow people daily until death, weeks before death, will report one, at least one experience. Um, they're, you said 90%. Right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And, and they're overwhelmingly comforting. They increase in frequency uh, as you get closer to death. And thematically, they change temporally as you get closer to death. So you start to see more and more uh, of the deceased who you've loved and lost. Um, and they tend to be very specifically focused on people who truly loved, nurtured, or secured you, um, as opposed to kind of a conditioned love. Um, often very little is said between the dreamer and the person, but a lot seems to be understood. Um, the themes are overwhelmingly life-affirming, validating, um, and seem to lessen the fear of death. We've actually looked at these experiences in terms of looked at dying as a post-traumatic experience and found significant growth. So there's this kind of underlying paradox where they're physically declining and lessening, which is what we see. Um, but inside, emotionally, psychologically, they're very vivid, alive, and gaining insight and understanding. I was amazed how like life-affirming these dreams or you know, what your patients describe as lifelike images are for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very yeah. much so. Yeah. And I think it promotes so much. Like, it seems like it's very related to how their lives were lived. It helps to promote self-understanding or even like coming to peace at the end of their lives. Yeah, it's kind of this idea of being put back together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you say, becoming whole again in your book. Yeah. Right? Like yeah, coming full circle. Yeah, very much. And, and it's interesting because... Time seems to be less relevant. So you could be 95, but, you know, you're dreaming of your mom when you were five. Um, and the vividness is striking, but it's, in the end, comforting. I thought it was also really beautiful how you acknowledged what your patients were experiencing, you know, because how many doctors may not be acknowledging it? No, oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, I worry about that because it's, I think we almost sterilize people from their own death. Like, this is a thing. And, and this matters. And that's actually what, what drove me to look into it was I don't have any predilection to anything like this at all. Um, but it was so clearly therapeutic to the patient that you kind of couldn't ignore it. Yeah. And for the family. I think you, you know, like having practiced in the hospital, we hear about it, you know. I think most of us don't sit down and actually talk to our patients, like, for an extended amount of time, unfortunately. But we hear about it, like that patient, you know, who who had a very long, prolonged course, so weak, and then they, like, they sit up and are telling, are very lucid and telling everyone things. And you think, oh, my gosh, as a doctor, was I wrong? Yeah. And then the next day they die. Yeah, that you whole know? phenomenon of ter terminal lucidity is a thing, right? And yeah. it's more than medical lore. And actually, uh, NIH has a, or did have a grant application to study it further. I, I actually have a theory on it. I, I, I think that one of the things that may be happening is clearly people who are close to dying, and we've seen this with demented patients, um, are, are, there's so many triggers to recall distant memories, which are often more intact, obviously, than recent events. You know, they can't remember what they had for breakfast, but they can wear their, remember their high school prom. I think that that kindles almost, that, that emotional intensity in and around the dying process rekindles memory. And that's why demented patients who may not remember their children's name all of a sudden pop up and mm -hmm. they can, because they may have a recall. There's um, one of the videos is very interesting in um, it's a daughter of a demented patient who kept trying to escape from the nursing home literally within the week of dying. And it's because she was having so many dreams of her husband that who she loved very much and who was deceased that she was reliving her wedding day. So she kept having to leave the nursing home with joy because she was reliving the best day of her life. And she became more verbal, uh, more acutely aware, more interactive, and more expressive. But the spark for that was the reflection. Um, so yeah, it's, it really is remarkable. 
And, you know, like what a spiritual gift, you know, like for the family members that surround that person, you know, what a gift to give those those family members before one dies. Yeah, we've looked at that. We've published two papers and uh, surveyed and interviewed about 750 people. And kind of the adage is that what's good for the patient is good for the family. And understandably, how we see someone die very much affects our grief. And beyond knowing our loved one is physically comfortable, the next pain we have is, are they okay when their eyes are closed? Where are they? How are they? And um, we've actually used grief scales and spoken and interviewed families. And this absolutely does help in grief processing. That's actually pretty profound because if most people are dying in the hospital and we're not giving, you know, the process of dying its importance, how if how we die affects our families and our grief, then that's like really, you know, profound grief. And if we're not even acknowledging this process. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we need to do better on and we're doing some work on on this is connecting the family to the process. Um, because there, there, there's an acuity in the way we handle the family uh, at the end of life, particularly in a hospital setting. There's an abruptness to everything. And I don't know as they're brought to the bedside uh, well enough at a time when they really truly need to connect. I agree. Because I think the truth is it's like, you know, people love the, you know, the pregnant woman. And then once a pregnant woman has a child, it's kind of like the woman's like kind of dropped from the face of the earth, you know, but it's kind of like the dying as well. Like the, the families, it's like grief never, ever goes away. I think one is able to, one learns to live with it, but it never goes away. And I think if we find ways in which to help a person, you know, how they die and help by, it helps their families. I think that would be profound. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I love your patient stories. Would you mind talking about a couple sure, of them? Sure. That's my favorite thing. Maybe we start off with Patricia, oh, the 90-year-old patient. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she was wonderful. And she's actually featured in the documentary. Um, she's probably the most educated, unformally educated person I've ever met. She consumed two books a week. And she lost wow. her mother when she was young and had to drop out of school to look after her father, who had pulmonary fibrosis, which she eventually died from. And um, she was fascinated by these experiences that she was having. And it was more of an intellectual query to her. And we have hours and hours and hours of footage of her. And what, what she enjoyed most was she had a long love affair with her husband. And um, often in these end-of-life experiences, you relive um, almost... Um, some symbolic type ritualistic type aspects of your relationships so her husband and her had this practice where she would go to the local swimming pool come home and he would be sitting at the uh at the kitchen table in a white undershirt with tea ready and a crossword puzzle and of course she knew everything and he would sit there and put the question forth and she would come up the answer and he dutifully wrote it down and so when she closed her eyes, that's what she went back to, um, which provided her enormous comfort and kind of this just reassurance that she wasn't alone. The other dream that was fascinating is um, she lost again, again, she lost her mother when she was very young. And the last time she saw her mother, she was outside of the room and she wanted her to see her report card because she'd just gotten an A. And... The question she was left with for the rest of her life, because she kind of stopped as a child in terms of where she was with her mother, was would she approve of who she was? And she was very open and honest that this was the pain she and wonder she'd kind of question she'd carried with her for her adult life. And she wanted to see her mother very badly. And towards the end, um, when we didn't think she was verbal, um, a medical student I had been working with her said, you know, are you seeing your mother? And she just pointed up and smiled. Um, so, you know, again, it, it kind of tells you, it, it, it's not surprising you can almost predict the most important people who she loved and lost and who formed who she was, truly, um, was her husband, who she adored, and her mother, who she lost. Um, and that's how she died. I think it's amazing how, you know, these end-of-life experiences can address, like, a patient's need. 
like for Patricia to see her husband or to feel acknowledged by her mother. Like, I love what you described, you know, um, in the book, she says, I guess as her mother were, was laying, was uh, laying, uh, lay dying, she's told her mother, I got a hundred in arithmetic today. And for that, for her to give her mother that gift, you know, and she had died that night of yeah. pneumonia. Right? Yes, yes. And to know that and to play that in your head that you did. Yeah, for the rest of her, her that life. That you did give. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I also love the, um, the story of Dwayne Johnson. Oh, yeah. He's, uh, he was a character. He, we have video of that entire thing, actually, with him. So very quickly, he was in his 40s and he had head and neck cancer. And he had this indescribable life. He had... He, he came from, you know, multi-generational substance abuse. Um, and at 16, he was on crack and he spent more of his life in jail than out. Um, and despite it, he was this surprisingly, uh, wonderful guy who was full of joy and always joking, um, kind of jigged down the hallway, had lots to say and singing. And the best way to describe it is he had a life where he couldn't really afford to live with regret. He just kind of put one foot in front of the other. And we were interviewing him and asking about the dreams. And he was joking that he was having these sexual dreams. And then all of a sudden he decompensates and he starts crying and was just kind of laid bare. And it turned out that he was having these horrific dreams and that he was being stabbed at the site of his open wound cancer um, by the people he had hurt. And um, he dissolves on film, and he cries openly. And he awoke the next day, and he asked to see his daughter. And so we were able to get his daughter there. And um, for the first time, really reconcile and say that he was sorry and how much he loved her. And from then on, he slept. So uh, a couple of things is, is, you know, these end-of-life experiences, first of all, they don't deny death at all. They almost kind of seem to transcend it. And it's also clear that you live how you die. So how else was he going to experience Or you this? die how you live. Yeah, sorry, right? you die how you live. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So how else was he going to experience this? But it, it, it was funny because we were pretty naive. We just set up a scale of comfort and distressing dreams for people to to click. But discomforting implies negative. And that's actually not always true. Sometimes they're actually the most transformational experiences. We've seen this with people who had PTSD from war, that sort of thing. So people who need to be forgiven or, or, or ask for forgiveness, we've seen a lot um, come about from the neg more what we would assume were negative experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, if end-of-life experiences can reflect the life that was lived, and it seemed like he was tormented for a while, was he tormented for a really long time before he came to you, that you, transition? You would never know it. Um, mm -hmm. he, he, he just couldn't afford to look backwards. Um, yet, you know, he had, he'd actually he had killed two people when he was living on the streets, and he never went to jail for those sort of considered self-defense. He was being robbed for his drugs or what have you. Um, but an awful lot of trauma. And I, I, you know, he just was surviving. Uh, he said he was more comfortable living on the streets, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so, oh. It's amazing, like, because it makes you kind of reflect upon life. Like, no matter what you do, even, you th even though you think you're okay, you still live with it. Yeah, actually, that's one of the biggest takeaways uh, that, that really um, drew me into this early uh, was that, you, you, you really are your past, right? And and I can remember when we had a unit, now this is a long time ago, and there was still a lot of World War II soldiers around. And, you know, having 10 beds and three of them were in a war. Um, so you can't shake those pivotal elements of your life, um, good and bad. Yeah, I think it's kind of like you're able to maintain when you're, like, physically better, but then when you become more vulnerable... It's like hard to suppress anymore. Like it's there. What you yeah. what you lived and your experiences are there. Well, actually, that's a really good way to describe it. I think that's exactly what's happening. Actually, in sleep, particularly, mm -hmm. um, you know, you don't have those constant that conscious governor um, to control what's what's flooding you. Yeah. 
I thought it was so beautiful because like on video, Dwayne Johnson is so feisty and lovable looking, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah, he really is. Like, how could you not like that guy? But oh then gosh. you don't realize how, what a troubled life he lived, like his, yeah. most of his life, you know? Yeah. And I think it's so beautiful how his dreams like led to like a big shift in the way in his demeanor and in his attitudes, even like asking for forgiveness from his daughter at the end. I mean, I was like bawling when I was reading it, but you know when his daughter came to visit him. Yeah, well, you know what he, and he had, hugged he had, for he had, the longest. Yeah, you know what had happened was he had stolen her, um, her, her either her food stamps and her money. Um. And then he left and he, he, he was tormented by it. And, uh, of course nobody knew, but you know, one of the things that happens, I think is dying is obviously the things that matter most come to surface. So you, you're not worried about your taxes, you're not worried about your oil change. You, you know, you, it comes down to those fundamental elements of having lived and almost, they're almost all relationship based. So, um, and again, this is an example of for him to die at peace. It wasn't a physical dilemma of management. It, it was much deeper uh, and more spiritual than that. And I think these like experiences helped him to die in peace. But even like the effect on his daughter, like the daughter states, and you know, you wrote in your book and on the video that she's never been held by her father for that length of time when he hugged her. Yeah, what actually you know? what actually happened was. So he's walking down the hallway and he, he, she yells, hey, old man. And uh, he turns around. It turned out there was a lot of people in the hallway. And, you know, he, he was almost, we always called him the mayor because he's always jostling and joking. And uh, he threw, throws away the walker and he grabs her and he holds on to her in desperation, actually. And about, there's not a dry eye from all the people who watch that. Uh, it was, he, he was clinging, you know, to her. Um, and yeah, he slept after, uh, he died differently because he could uh, rec find reconciliation and peace. And she grieved differently and recalls him differently. Um, she's proud of him actually. Uh, and we stayed in touch and um, that sh very much shaped her recollections. And she made changes to her own life because of that moment or that time with him too. Yeah, actually, that's true. She uh, went to a program, and she herself was on drugs and stopped. Yeah. How like amazing the power of humanity, or even like the humanity of that very moment. Well, and the idea that her. yeah, that the idea that you know um, you can't make positive change, you but you can't right up until the end. Yeah. yeah. You know, Dwayne made me think about a lot of things, you know, because after reading about his experiences, I couldn't help but wonder if we ourselves are our judges. Like you think when you die, you go up somewhere and someone's judging you. But his case makes me wonder if we ourselves are the judges of our own lives. And that's like the worst kind of judge, you know? Well, that's so, that's brilliant. I actually think that makes sense. Yeah. yeah like looking at your like life's experiences as a video. Yeah, well, 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 this notion that you have to answer to yourself ultimately, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that a, you can't hide. No, 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 not at all. No, not at all. You know, we had a, we had a, um, a woman once who amidst alcoholism and whatnot had abandoned her husband and uh, four children when they were young. And, she had the most, was having the most tormented time and finally acknowledged what she did. And again, she couldn't sleep and was anxious and whatnot. And so we notified the, found the husband. He came and he forgave her and she slept. So, some, something about this idea of atonement um, or being released, you know. Uh, and, and there's lots of stories like that in, in the book. You know, the, the, a very moving one just because I, I witnessed it, was a, uh, a woman whose child had ended up in prison, drug-related crimes, and her whole identity as a mother, um, you know, she questioned, uh, and she questioned her worth. And then at the end, what happens is she was from Puerto Rico, and she sees herself on the beach, and her parents come and tell her she's a good person and a good mom. So, you know, this idea that we've all been injured for having lived and somehow often these wounds are addressed. 
Uh, wow. You know, even like thinking about the, the number of untruths that all of us must live with. Like why sometimes I think these ex- end of life experiences are so profound, but maybe we don't have to wait till the end. No, but you're right. To there's, there's something... make the changes or think about, yeah, you know? Yeah, it's a more honest narrative, right? Yeah. But in the end, even like if you're hiding throughout your life, like at the end, you may not be able to hide anymore. No. So why not address now? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know? Yeah. Lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. I think Dwayne's case is so beautiful, Dwayne's like life, because it also made me wonder if it's perhaps never too late to change. No, uh, clearly. And, and, and uh, you know, I think that, that there's other examples uh, of that, like Eddie the cop as well. I mean, yeah. people who are, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. get the sense um, that there is justice, you know, in life. And the idea of like mercy. Yeah. That, you know, you can't really ask for mercy from someone else. Like we need to show it on ourselves. Yeah. I, I love this conversation because you're actually reformulating how I, this idea of self-reflection is, is yeah, that ultimately who you have to answer to is yourself. Yeah. Honestly, Chris, I mean, I'm not lying when I say this. I was crying throughout your whole book. I should have just like carried <laughs> tissues with me. I was crying throughout the whole book. Well, and it's shocking <laughs> to think that they're all real and those are their names. And um, everybody who's asked to participate wanted to. I think that's incredible. That's kind of a sub story. Yeah. Was it the di- the dying had no secondary gain, but they still wanted to be relevant and they wanted to feel as though um, they had value and they could contribute. It's it's remarkable. And the other aspect, they found a doctor who was willing to listen, to sit down and listen. Well, I think the, some nurses who made the doctor sit down and listen. <laughs> One of the things that's fascinating is giving these talks to a group of nurses because you're, all the heads just go up and down in acknowledgement. They all know this. Yeah, yeah, it's different to a physician's group, but sometimes physicians are, you know, physicians are more in and out. Yeah, and I think nurses spend a lot of time with the patients, and maybe we as doctors—I mean, not you—but <laughs> the majority of us need to change. Yeah, you know, yeah, the primary refer in our first study was actually the nurse's aide because she was just there and accessible. Um, you know, how are children's end-of-life experiences different than adults? Yeah, they're very different. And we've actually published a case series on this. And um, <clears throat> I take care of the kids here, actually. We have a program of about 115 children in a day. Um, you know, they, they, they die differently. They don't um, – there's a reason why I picked that Emily Dixon poem to lead that chapter – um, because they do live as though every day is anew and without regret. So they don't have reference points. They don't um, talk about things they wish they had done or hadn't done. And they only know to live presently. Um, an example is that I'm always amazed at from an adult lens is children um, may have a very limited time limit, but it's very important they get to school the next day um, because they don't think in relative terms. Uh, 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 of time, they often don't know people who have died. Um, so what they do in many of our cases is they've dreamt of animals they've known and died. And what's fascinating, and this is on film, is they use they often use the same language. So they have they have a I, th- I think what I I'm amazed with their inability to intuit or interpret these experiences. And what they will say is I'm not alone. Um, and that I'm loved. Uh, yeah. And for some of the kids, like, you know, their parents never told them they were dying, right? It was never really explained to them, but somehow through the dreams, they came to understand, it seemed like. They all did, that are like the children that are highlighted in the books. Those are, mm-hmm. you know, again, real cases, and those are their names. And that was where what what has, has been one of the most remarkable experiences of my life as a physician was that I'm an internist. I have, you know, really didn't want to take care of kids. It's a longer story, but I got into it because of their symptom issues. And <clears throat> one of the things that I just didn't think I could do was walk a child through this with any sort of objectivity in terms of preparing them to die. 
And what I found was that, that it kind of took care of itself. Um, that, yeah, they absolutely self have self-informed um, from these experiences. The other thing that's remarkable is how many of them leave us with concern for others, um, which is just mind-blowing. So they seem to be born um, with a sense of grace that's hard to describe. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, seeing a child die. I mean, that must have been so hard, you know, as a doctor to be at their bedside and, you know, be with them. But that's so, yeah, that's so courageous. Well, I don't, I again, it wasn't by intention. Uh, yeah. they, they do it better than adults in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the, um, I think they're disinhibited to think in interesting ways, right? And um, so you can see that, for example, in Jenny, um, where she created a whole world for herself in her when her eyes were closed, right? She always went back to this idea that she was in this castle. And you and I might think of a castle as kind of limited, firm structures that, that denied access or whatever, where she thought, she described it as her safe place. And then what she did was she put a pool there. She put a window with warm light. She put a piano. She put her aunt, who had deceased, put all the animals that she had known. And they were all back to life and healthy and playful. Um, that's how she created an, another reality or world for herself where she was, she was, as her word, she was safe and she wasn't alone and she was loved. Um, and that's how she left us was she... Um, she put herself in a different place. And I love what she said. I mean, I don't know if I can say it without like crying, but I love what she said. She said, I'm not going to be sick where I'm going, you know, to the castle. Yeah. Well, she looked after her um, family that she told us. And that, that that's what so many of the children have done is. So for me, the relationship I went into this almost paternalistically and the relationship was inverted. So she told us about being okay and comforted us um, in doing so. At one point you describe, um, I guess her mother was listening to her, um, you know, she was, and I guess there was a baby monitor in the room. And at one point she talks about speaking to God. Yeah, it was on a Monday and um, there was a baby monitor in the world. Now, keep in mind, she has never been baptized, and they hadn't mm -hmm. gone to church. And um, the mom was used to hearing her on the baby monitor call for her, and she heard her, uh, uh, Jenny, talking. And she went in there to find out what was wrong, and she said, nothing. She said, well, I'm hearing all this chatter. And she said, well, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to God. And she went on to describe him as a good-looking older man. <laughs> And um, so what happened was I, her mom, Michelle, uh, had called and said, you know, because we were in communication about what was going on. And so we went out there the next day actually to, to film her. And up until that point, actually, she had had some escalating distress and restlessness. And from that day on talking to God, she slept and she was she passed on Friday. So her last real conversations wasn't in the world that we're seeing, but was somewhere, was somewhere else. And her mom's on film um, talking. She said, you know, I don't understand where all the, because uh, religious references are rare, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but, but that was her experience. But I guess the profound feelings are all throughout, right? Like the love, the forgiveness. Yeah, there's a, there's a beautiful piece written by Terry Egan, a Harvard Divinity student, and it was on CNN, what people talk about with the, the, when at the end of their life, and she argues that um, they talk about uh, God in the form of love and forgiveness, and our first and last church is kind of our family, and that what people talk about is absolutely consistent with the tenets of faith, not the symbols of faith. Yeah, because maybe we own, we all put our limitations when we talk about, you know, like the religious names and everything when it's really like the tenets of faith, as you say. Yeah. Uh, that, that's ultimately what should matter. Yeah. And those themes are throughout. 
You know, I thought it was pretty remarkable how it seems like, you know, the end of life experiences not only like help to alleviate the fears that we have, but they're also helpful, helpful in like the grieving process for like everyone involved, like Ginny's mom. Oh, very much. Um, she, uh, she's convinced to this day that um, she left somewhere, but that she's there. Yeah. It re redefines dying for these people. Definitely. Like, if you see, like, peace in your loved ones as they lay dying, how does that, that not help the family member, like, knowing that they could be maybe in a peaceful place? Yeah, I and mean, the, the examples are just remarkable. So, if, you know, if you've got a couple that's been together for 60 years and you lost a child together and at the end of the life you're looking down and your your partner is holding that lost child then that takes death from emptiness and lessening to something rich and connected. And the family is generally often connected to the things that that person's dreaming of as well. So it connects this continuity of, of, of having lived that, that, that doesn't have an, an abrupt end. Because I think, you know, in, in this kind of scenario, like grieving becomes not just about a life that ended, but more about like honoring that life. Mm -hmm. Right, right. The idea that the best parts of having lived are still there. Yeah. Yeah. Like all aspects of the beauty of life. Yes, very much. Very much. Can I ask you for those that don't believe, you know, and they say that this could be like a confusional state like delirium, how would you differentiate delirium versus the end of life experiences or dreams? Yeah, <laughs> it's really easy. Um, so delirium, as you and I both know, is cognitive disorganization and, and people are kind of all over the place. They're tangential. They're disorganizing their thoughts. So they're random. Um, they're generally very dis distressed, distressed to the point they often need to be medicated uh, tragically, sometimes they're tied. Um, the themes are usually horrific, um, fires and whatnot. Uh, and these are not people who recall these experiences. You don't have logical conversations with these parents. People who are having end of life experiences are the same people who are doing their taxes and driving their cars. Um, they sound like you and I, they actually have heightened acuity. Their thoughts are extraordinarily organized. They're recalled with clarity. But the biggest difference between delirium and what we're talking about is how they're left f feeling. So I've never met a happy, comforted, delirious <laughs> patient, <laughs> as you and I both know. Um, they, you know, gain superpowers because they're fighting for their lives. They may be somebody's stealing from them, raping them, murdering them, all hor horrible things. People at the end of their life, uh, uh, having end-of-life experiences, um, are peace. Um, soothed, comforted, can talk fluidly. So there's no, they're, they're, again, there's, they're organized in their thoughts. They're not disorganized. Yeah. And I mean, I think people love to talk about delirium, like theoretically, but, you know, having seen delirium, you know, it's a very acute, confused state. And like many don't even remember how they even acted. Oh God, no. It's, de yeah. it's, 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 it's dehumanizing. And yeah. 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 Totally different. And, you know, it, just to be clear, so we screen for delirium. So we use things like the CAM inventory. There's tests you can do um, to make sure somebody's not delirious. And, again, these people have to read these long forms of consent about the study, have it witnessed, and then a lot of them, again, are in film. Mm -hmm. While the patients in your study are clearly looking at a camera, <laughs> yeah, talking yeah. to, like, talking to you as if you're talking to me yeah. and stating their dreams or, like, or their visions. Or like Patricia Shining's, reciting Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah you're not going to find delirious patients reciting Shakespeare. I know. <laughs> I can't even cite Shakespeare no, I, in real life. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. Um, through your work, I think you really redefine um, death and dying. I think through your work, like you show that end of life experiences are not what we think it, they are or what death is. You know, it's not what we think it is. And I think reading your book, I couldn't help but think like, you know, with end of life experiences, it's all these new words that I never thought to attribute it to. It's life affirming. It's self-healing. It's about the human spirit and our like resiliency. 
It's about love, meaning, grace, and forgiveness. It's a spiritual awakening. It's comforting. It's therapeutic. It's like words that we've never heard when we talk about death and dying. Yeah, it's well said. It's it's this idea that that there's a, there's another perspective to dying, other than I think we're so overwhelmed with grief that we're experiencing or anticipating, and we're so taken aback by the changes that we see physically that I think that obscures the fact that there's something else uh, going on, and and again this idea that it's it's this life closure. Um, and a lot go, a lot's going on. It's funny, um, you know. There's nothing new in this work, right? It's been described forever. But like, I just got a call from a, a two-time Emmy award-winning producer in Australia named Lynette Walworth, and she's working with the indigenous people of uh, South America and Australia. And she phones and she said she's not working on dying, but just came up in kind of conversations. And she phones. She says, you know. Um, these people have language, actually. They have words to describe, like they've, they've named it, all of these experiences. And, you know, the, the one elder said, basically, you know, we're sad when somebody dies, but we don't worry for them um, because they, 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 have this whole, they, they have this whole recognition of it. I think, like, we as a society do ourselves a profound disservice when we don't acknowledge it, the, the experiences that are occurring. Yeah, I think we, we make it harder than it has to be. Um, and, and, and we're part of the denial process. You know, it, and and it, this is not all on doctors. I mean, we're a consumer ageist society that assumes there's always something to fix or remedy. And um, so we do, we do our own share of denying. Yeah, but how much more, how much more peace could we all attain if we talk about yeah. all cycles of life, you know? Yeah. And death is another part of the cycle of life. Yeah, very much. You know, I just want to say, like, reading your book, I have to say, like, I felt like a sense of shame. I think, like, the fact that, like, you know, I, I finished my residency in 2009, and medical care is so different. Everything is based on, like, time, how quick you are, or, you know, how much you can chart, or, you know, that I think we've gotten away from the meaning. But the fact that you, as a physician, actually take the time to sit and talk and know your patients, I think this is something that we, as physicians, or even, like, healthcare, all need to think about. Because I, can, I th- can't help but think that care would be profoundly better if we knew who we were treating. I was fortunate um, to stumble into this work. And the difference between what my experience is and your experience is that the expectation of me was that I got to know my patients well and that I didn't have a clock on me. And it's kind of a utopic way to practice medicine, but it, it actually what dying deserves, which is not a, um, a flyby. Um, so yeah, it, it's the construct in which we've, we have to experience our profession. Yeah. I just really I think lucky. it's like, I, I knew though, by the way, intuitively that I wasn't fulfilled, uh, that I, you know, when you know it, <laughs> when you're a caring person and you're in an outpatient setting and I had this happen in my clinic as a resident and you got 20 minutes to see, document, and move on. It's actually not 20 minutes. Yeah, it's you know, probably it's less. Like, and that yeah. person comes in in despair. And you say, what are you in for kind of thing? And they say, I'm depressed. And you go, oh, shit. And it's not because you don't care. It's because you are going to feel more tension, more negative stress, because you had to get to the next uh, transaction. And you end up not resenting necessarily, but not able to properly, your, your ability to care was so compromised that it felt futile and helpless. And that's kind of, um, I, I we recognize that early. Because I think care and treatment is not always like a pill. Sometimes care and treatment like literally requires for you to hear, listen, talk, get to know that person. 
as a human. And I think sometimes with, you know, modern medicine, that human humanity is forgotten. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the role of reassurance um, as a modality uh, is powerful. Um, of being listened to is powerful. But, you know, they've they've figured this out in, in a fee-for-service model anyways that's volume-based. Um, and that's, you know, we're just the commodity within the system. Yeah, And I think that's part of the reason why we're not giving death and dying. It's like proper respect. Well, there's no, there's no billable code for it and um, for suffering. You know, they, they finally found a way because it was to the good to have billable codes and around DNR discussions and things like that. Um, but it's so silly in retrospect, you know, yeah, it really is. <laughs> but we come to accept that silliness. Like that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. Well, we get, you know, yeah, we sure do. Yeah. When you asked, you know, in your book, you state that you asked Dr. Milch, what qualities are necessary to become a good palliative care doctor? And he states to you, righteous indignation. Yeah, exactly. He's a fascinating guy. So his brother's David Milch, who you might know of, the writer-producer of, of uh, Deadwood, L.A. Law, Hill Street Blues, all those shows. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So he's a pretty interesting guy. He comes from a... Um, a, a you know, we are, I was just so fortunate because... He, he comes from a multi-generation surgical family, had the biggest practice in Western New York, and he left at the height of his career. He actually started volunteering at hospice before there was a benefit, because we were one of the first hospitals in the country, as a resident. He just knew we weren't treating dying patients with dignity. And so then he leaves the height of his practice in his 40s to do this full-time. At that time, nobody did that. And so that's who was ahead of me. And uh, he just enjoyed the good fight. I, I mean, because this model started as a rebuke really to uh, how the dying were treated by, in modern medicine. Um, so that's who he was. So yeah, he made it a, he made it a, so what you signed on for was advocacy as well. Well, Dr. Kerr, thank you so much for all the work that you do and for shedding light on such an important topic in our life cycle, you know, death and dying. You know, I can't help but wonder if all of us will rethink what death and dying is once reading your book and seeing all your work. Well, thank you. This has been so enjoyable. I've, I've gained a lot of insight from hearing your insights. So thank you. <laughs> My crazy head thoughts, but thank no, you. <laughs> you're wonderful. You're good at this. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends.